1: Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. We have reached the end of yet another incredible week in the Independent Republic. We have moved into brand new studios and begun the new Talk Radio revolution. We have witnessed Boris Johnson changing policy on immigrant NHS workers after we told him it was wrong. And we have edged ever closer to more lockdown restrictions being lifted. Already we're talking about pubs reopening, schools unlocking their classrooms and planes starting to fly again, while at the same time watching the infection rate of coronavirus decline significantly, not just in London, but in the rest of the world too could it be that there is light at the end of the tunnel we want to hear more from you of course as we enter yet another bank bank holiday weekend once again yesterday the beaches and the tourist hotspots were full of people who don't appear to be too frightened to go out and all those people who were punished and all those people who were fined even yesterday in Devon police were handing out fines to people for driving down a road that went towards a beach it turns out the CPS are not absolutely sure whether they can prosecute anybody because they're not entirely sure what laws they have actually broken tell us what you Plans after this weekend, and tell us what you are seeing out there as well. 0344 499 1000 is the number. Coming up later on, we'll be asking former border force officer Chris Hobbs just how the police are supposed to ensure that people stick to their 14 day quarantine restrictions because that's what they're now told they have to do after they return to these shores from being somewhere else, and why Priti Patel can't seem to get to grips with those migrant boats we spoke about yesterday. We invited her onto the show as Home Secretary to talk about what was going on with Nigel Farage down at Dover. Uh, She declined to do so. She did, however, answer some MPs' questions yesterday. Uh, I tweeted those out last night. She's basically saying that they are stopping people from coming here in boats. They are making sure that many of the people that come here are getting returned to France. However, some of them are still slipping through. And she says they are doing their best. Well, that's welcome news as far as I'm concerned. However, it's not quite good enough. So you need to do a little bit better, I'm afraid, Ms Patel. Uh, And we still need to talk to you on this radio show. It's not really good enough just to answer questions from friendly Tory MPs. 0344 499 1000. Today's homeschooling section will be all about cars how to keep that battery from going flat how to fix a puncture and when to change the oil in a lockdown and because it's friday it's time for another sparkling edition of the perrier awards in the company of marta malagon 0344 499 1000 you'll listen to me mike graham, on the fastest growing radio station on the planet it is of course talk radio mid-morning with mike graham talk radio now, what we like to do uh, on these occasions on a Friday is to kind of look back on the week to see where we are, to see where we've got to, to see where we are possibly going in the next week. And who better uh, to do that with than in the company of Mr. George Pascoe Watson, former political editor of The Sun, now chairman, of course, of Portland Communications. George, very good morning to you. And good morning to you, Mike. Thanks very much indeed for joining us. It's been a reasonably good week, I think, for the government, hasn't it? oh i think so i mean i always start from
2: the perspective that it's a hugely impossible task for any government any government around the world nobody is getting this right 100 percent of the time but in terms of moving the story forward you've seen the numbers uh of uh incidents of the disease coming down you've seen them getting on top of testing you've seen them getting on top of uh, personal protection equipment the NHS has not fallen over. So by any stretch of the imagination, they're doing OK. And, and of course, the government is, is hanging together. They're not uh, throwing uh, daggers at each other. Mm. Uh, but there is you know, still a lot of uh, journey to go, a lot of distance to go. We have a big step next week with the test and, and trace uh, operation beginning as we begin to try and get people back to work.
1: Yes, quite. And of course, it's very much about the, the, the sort of the language of government an awful lot of the time. And Boris Johnson's performance at Prime Minister's Questions was an awful lot better this week. Keir Starmer's was an awful lot worse. It seems as though the conversation about opening schools has been had and has been sort of won, I think, by the government, even though, you know, you would think the unions were putting up a bit of a fight. It seems to me that come the first week of June, I think we're going to see some schools opening up, because it seems to me as well that all of the demands that are being made uh, in terms of how safe it can be are going to be met. Oh, that's right. I mean, there's an awful lot of pressure on both sides of the equation here.
2: If you are the prime minister, on the one hand, you want things to get moving. You need the country to get back. You need schools to open because you need mums and dads to be able to go back to work in the first place. But on the other hand, you can't take the risk of there being another epidemic outbreak. Mm. And uh, the safety of the nation is the number one thing. Science is only as good as the data it can get. And uh, it's relatively light uh, in terms of the depth of the detail. And also, not all scientists agree on uh, the evidence. So it's a very, very hard uh, situation to be in. The quarantine issue is a big problem for uh, the aviation sector, uh, which will have a knock-on effect on lots of other sectors. Like, for instance, if we don't have an aviation sector up and running and airports up and running properly, Then what about foreign students when they come back into the country for the new term? That has an impact on universities and spending in shops and all these sorts of things. Everything is interdependent, so
1: they've got to get it right. Well, this is the thing. I mean, I think the quarantine aspect of stuff is very much something that the world as a general rule can lift. I think they have to talk about it, I suppose, at the moment. But it doesn't make much sense to me because, I mean, for example, I know for us for Australia and New Zealand, it was something that worked very well, but they did it very differently. You know, I happen to know somebody who went back to Australia because he was from that country, having worked abroad for a while. He was taken from the airport in a taxi to a hotel uh, and put in that hotel and told to stay in a room for 14 days and not come out. Now, we are doing it completely ridiculously by saying to people, we expect you to go to your home and not come out, which is not going to work, is it? Well, you've got to
2: imagine that some people will take your life into their own hands and decide Mm. not to do that. And, you know, there are countries I know, like Poland, for instance, where they did have spot checks every day, every two or three hours, somebody would actually come around and knock on the door, the police would, just to make sure you were there. We can't, we don't have that type of, uh society in this country Mm. i know you'd say the same about australia and new zealand smaller populations um and i think that it's harder to do that in the united kingdom um and i think that there's going to be definite uh, issues around that but the quarantine issue also has an impact on uh schooling as well and the reopening of schools i think what's interesting is the way that the trade unions stepped back I think, much more than you might have expected them to do when they began to very much get on the wrong side of the public uh, opinion. Yes.
1: Well, because as we've seen in the last couple of days with the crowded beaches of this country and the crowded uh, sort of tourist spots, there's no fear for people, it would seem, in going out. Oh, absolutely not. And I
2: think people have taken the view that uh, they don't feel that there's so much of a risk. Now, what's interesting about that is that we know that fewer than one in five people in London and way about one in 20 people in the rest of the country have actually had uh, uh, a brush with coronavirus Mm. so in many ways there's lots of people yet to get it but at the same time the incidence of it the amount of the disease floating around is reckoned to be very very low now and I think people are not stupid you know people understand that there's a much lower risk and also if they continue to socially distance then I think that they feel there's there's a uh, not an immunity, but it's a good way of controlling things. Now, you can't continue to keep people locked down, but there has been, like an incredible feeling of national effort togetherness that we can come together and do the right thing. And as long as the country keeps on giving the right, the government keeps on giving the right knowledge,
1: facts, and guidance, then I think people will be prepared to stick with it for the time being. Yes, I think so. And also, George, you and I have been speaking throughout this kind of lockdown period, and it would seem that from week to week, the dial moves quite considerably. For example, you know, two weeks ago, who would have thought that you would be listening to ministers uh, suggesting that pubs might be able to open at some point in late June, early July?
2: Well, of course. And uh, that's partly because the evidence keeps on changing. The science keeps on changing. You know, next week, I think they're going to announce even further changes to the uh, uh, to, to the facts of this case. And, uh, and that's because the nature of a virus. So businesses have to be live, flexible, responsive, to the circumstances, and ministers have to be similarly flexible and not so rigid mm. that they're, they're, they're you know, dogmatically refusing to, to listen to the changing evidence. The, the fact is we have to be responsive here, and we have to also hope that the pharmaceutical industry
1: uh, are able, successfully, to find a vaccine and a treatment. Yes, I think that's absolutely right. And as the testing gets more and more uh, sophisticated and more and more widespread, I suppose, and as we hear now that the infection rate is already going down, <clears throat> you know, those two things will kind of cross each other, I suppose, at some point, And we'll be able to say with some alacrity, um, you know, that we are relatively in a period of time now where either a lot of people have had it uh, or we know who's got it and we know who to avoid. And that's the aim. The aim is to get to such a sophisticated
2: position that uh, we know who's got it, who's had it, and who is in danger of having it. And if we can do that, then we can manage the situation. At the same time, that gives the pharma guys, the brilliant scientists and doctors, and all those people who prepare to humanly test uh, these uh, vaccine trials. Uh, Once that uh, gets a bit of momentum, then perhaps we might be able to get into a position. But I know the the scientists, the experts, they say, Mike, that we're going to be with coronavirus in some form for many many decades we're going to have to live
0: with this and deal with it
1: yes and i mean we're going to talk about this a little bit later on but but certainly we're going to be seeing i think a lot of big companies and you work with an awful lot of them saying to their people you know there's no need for you to come back into the office anymore because we can see we can see that you can very easily work from home and if that means having fewer people in the office because you have to keep them further apart then that's going to be necessary anyway
2: well, certainly, it's, it's a hard job to have the kind of human contact that happens in, in office life um, when there has to be social distancing. It kind of cuts out the purpose of having people together in the room. And so I think that will have an impact, because that has an impact on places like the City of London, downtown, mm. where you have big, multi-office uh, blocks, high-rises and, and the like. Perhaps businesses will begin to say, actually, we don't need the support staff Uh, coming into the office anymore we can get rid of a couple of the floors and that will have an impact on the commercial landlord big pension funds are invested in these buildings so there's a big shake-up uh, of the economy which will happen because it'll also impact transport and uh, the way that people move around and the you know the way that the railways are run and the roads are run and all the rest of it so expect significant changes, I
1: think. Yes, I think that's absolutely right. And what about this idea of an immunity certificate, which might be something that the government could introduce? Now, there are many people out there who will say, oh, this is a terrible uh, sort of infliction on our civil liberties. We don't want our privacy invaded. But that's the other thing I think that people are going to have to get used to a little bit, is that there will be some tracking, some tracing, uh, and possibly some certificates of immunity handed out, because that may be necessary. So the test... Regime is going to be called a test and trace. Mm. It's now not going to be
2: called track because of a fear, a reasonable fear. I think that too many people would worry about Big Brother and the state snooping but you are right all of us are going to have to get real this is effectively wartime conditions and in wartime conditions we have to give up some of the freedoms for the greater good and the greater good is that we as a herd as it were as the whole community can uh, defeat uh, or at least work with this condition and that does mean that we're going to have to have some sort of a passport some sort of a certificate which says you have been tested and you have the antibody and that will allow people to have freedoms again because they are not at risk. Mm. And it may be difficult and people will not like it and people will not like some of the information that will be held on on the app when that is uh, launched. But I'm afraid the alternative is way worse. And the alternative is we get, we get stuck uh, in this terrible uh, lockdown situation, which will I- effectively destroy our way of life in the UK so it's, it's a much smaller price to pay and one which I think most people in this country will be pretty reasonable about.
1: Yeah, so what are you hearing from the business leaders that you talk to George on a sort of regular basis?
2: Well most people are concerned obviously about uh, when things get back to some sort of a new normal what sort of economy they'll be coming back into. There'll be big changes to the way that their workforce feel about coming back to work do people feel safe to travel? Do they feel safe to actually be in the office with others? Mm. Uh, because people genuinely are concerned for their own safety. That's, uh, that's perfectly understood. Uh, there'll be a sense, I think, that lots of people are asking, why do I have to come back to work? Well, the business has to keep on turning, otherwise it won't be a business. Yeah. Will there be people buying? Will there be a market to sell into? That's another question. What about the international situation? Are we going to have foreign clients? Will, will the business that we set up be able to uh, to carry on? And also we've got at the same time UN, uh, so US, UK, and EU trade talks underway. How is that going to impact uh, our future? So real sense of uh, anxiety would be too strong for some people, I'm sure it is, but it's much more about planning a new life uh, in, a, in a post-COVID world, because things will not be the same. And what ways does the business have to adapt and how can it make sure that there's the, the uh, confidence of its own people to come back to work, and how can they be sure that the business which may have been running on a very small profit margin uh, is going to carry on when there's very little uh, activity around. So plenty for uh, CEOs and uh, and boards to be worried about, but a sense that actually the government has done pretty well here in terms of keeping the economy slightly frozen but able to pick up again hopefully, in the the next few weeks and months.
1: Yes, I think that's absolutely right. George, thank you very much indeed. George Pascoe Watson there, former political editor of The Sun, now chairman of Portland Communications. Good morning and welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio as we sit uh, very high above the River Thames looking out as we do at the river and we can see all manner of things. We can see the cheese grater building. We can see St. Paul's today. Uh, We can see the Tower of London. It's like a panorama like you've never seen before. It's quite remarkable. It's almost as if I'm sitting in a revolving restaurant uh, enjoying the views from right, left, centre and all other points north, south, east and west. It's marvellous and I'm very happy to welcome you into the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Uh, with our brand new cameras and our brand new views uh, and our brand new great opinions coming in from all sorts of new callers that we're getting because we are the fastest growing radio station on the entire planet coming up we're going to speak to nick freeman otherwise known as mr loophole he's a lawyer he's a man that knows a thing or two about traffic offenses he's a man who knows a thing or two about the road systems in this country and he's on a crusade and i'm very much in support of this crusade he needs regulation for this lockdown boom in cycling because there is something which he is going to be terming toxic cycling going on out there where people think that they now because of the fewer number of cars on the road can literally do whatever they want whenever they want wherever they want as long as they're on a bicycle it seems absolutely madness to me 03444991000 we need to hear from you because I know that many of you out there do cycle and that's fine and as long as you do it well and you do it properly and you do it within the law then I'm more than happy for you to carry on doing it but I'm afraid there are too many of your fellow cycling brethren who do not do that uh, and they always become very very ratty uh, on social media when you call them out on it 0344 499 1000 we got Perry Awards coming up a bit later on as well you'll listen to me Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio mid morning with Mike Graham Talk Radio now, for anyone who's been driving around uh, in the last eight weeks or so, you will know, as I do, that there's been an absolute explosion of uh, cyclists. And funnily enough, it seems to coincide with the weather. So, for example, the better the weather is, the more bikes are out on the streets. Let's talk to Nick Freeman right now and find out uh, what he wants to do. Nick, a very good morning to you. Welcome. Good morning, Mike. Thank you. Thanks very much indeed. I quite like this phrase, toxic cycling, because there's no doubt in my mind uh, that there are an awful lot of cyclists out there who do not give us stuff for the rules, who do not care about about the highway code who do not care at all about red lights about cycle lanes or cycle tracks as they're now being called and for for london for example and you can tell me about other parts of the country i mean the mayor and his sort of obsessiveness has led to the most ridiculous um sort of street furniture now and and curbs all over the place and different lanes of things and different you know ways of of, of traveling that it's very very confusing for people
0: yeah I mean, look, we've been blessed, haven't we, with lockdown and the most amazing weather. And it's like a a sort of um, heaven sent to paradise to to cyclists. And there are literally no cars, or have been no cars on the road. Mm. Um, So cyclists have been presented with, you know, an opportunity to do what they will. And, of course, some cyclists, as you say, cycle responsibly, but there's been an increasing number. I use the expression toxic cycling. I mean, because they cycle very dangerously, they seem to have sort of stealth, They, they sneak up quietly behind you. They miss you narrowly, uh, and they, they, some of them, unfortunately, seem to derive pleasure from this. Yes. Uh, and at the end of the day, they go very quickly. Uh, they pose a huge danger, and my, my problem is this. In the same way that you know, some motorists have been taking advantage of the empty roads and been driving like lunatics as well. So Listen,
1: yeah, I mean, I have to I'm say, not, I'm, I've, I've,
0: I'm, I've, not, I'm not in favor of anyone who's a lunatic, whether it be on a cycle or whether you're in a car. With a car, you have a registered number. We know who you are. On a pedal cycle, we don't know who you are. You have this protection of, of anonymity. Uh, and whilst there are rules in place, I mean, most of the Road Traffic Act, a, a great deal of it, um, com- applies to cyclists. The big problem is, well, that's all good and well, but who are they? You know, you have a video of someone cycling in a dangerous manner. Well, who is it? We don't know. So the starting point will be to have a, a registered tabard or, or on, on the back. so Someone wears a high-vis um, vest and there's a registration number on there. So if anyone witnesses something, they have a registration number in the same way that they do with motorists. They send that into a central base, and there is a legal obligation um, to say who is the registered owner of that um, cycle, and there are penalties for not complying with it. Yes. That, 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 that will be my starting point, because I think once you make people take account, they become responsible. Um, at the moment, they cycle with impunity, because unless they're stopped. Uh, and apprehended at the scene with no idea who it is so that will be my starting point but then, one
1: of i mean one of the things that we're now used to nick and, and you must be used to in a big way is that most traffic offences are not recorded by by humans at all they're recorded by devices they're recorded by cameras they're yeah. recorded by you know uh something uh, something going off you know as you're going up the wrong, wrong wrong way up a one-way street you know or you're parking somewhere you're not supposed to park it's very unlikely for you to uh, ever uh, be uh, handed a ticket by someone well
0: absolutely and also it's important to remember that the cyclists have these um uh, cameras affixed to their helmets. Yeah. So they record everything, every transgression in relation to a motorist. If a motorist has a camera, what, what he shows is, well, we've got a, a particularly bad piece of cycling, but who is it? And that, that's the starting point, isn't it? Until we address that problem, we're never going to move off. And I think the moment that problem is addressed, people will automatically, cyclists will automatically know, I, I need to cycle responsibly because I'm now accountable. People will know who I am. And then, of course, in relation to that accountability, at the moment, you know, unless unless somebody is convicted of wanton and furious cycling, mm. which is an 1861 offence, so yes. that's how far we go back. Is that what that
1: guy was done yes, for who was. ran into that's, the woman?
0: That's correct. Yeah. Um, um, it's 1861 legislation that the, the, you know, if you're caught cycling dangerously, the maximum penalty is £2,500. Okay, there is no penalty point system. There is no disqualification. Right. There is no custody. Mm. Okay, so that the penalties for the most serious type, and, and if you, if you hit someone, injure someone, or kill someone, unless you could be successfully prosecuted under that section, um, of, of the 1861 legislation, the offences against the person, there, and that has a maximum sentence of two years. So in other words, you can drive dangerously. Uh, you can kill someone, and unless you could be convicted of manslaughter or, or murder, you're going to be charged with uh, a sentence, uh, an offence that carries a maximum sentence of two years. And that is very hard to prove. It's very remote. Um, for the majority, you know, if you're, if you're caught driving dangerously, um, your case will probably end up at the Crown Court, and you have every likelihood of going to prison. Yes. Um, so there needs to be parity. There needs to be, in my view, a point system in the same way. There basically needs to be parity with motorists and cyclists. They need, we need to know who you are. They need to have insurance and we need to have proper penalties so to a large extent with that accountability the sentences will please themselves if the sentences are appropriate at the moment most offenses are dealt with by way of a 50 pound fixed penalty ticket if you can find out who it is right. and of course the police have got better things to do haven't they yes um, and i know it does the, the, the problem at the moment is we've got motorists now back on the road and we've got this friction that exists you know, the cyclists have claimed ownership of the road during lockdown, and mm. they've now got to. And there was a, there was an aggression before that, and and now they've had eight nine weeks of owning the roads, and they're now having to give way to the motorists again. Uh, and there is there is going to be some. T- Terrible accidents. Yes, uh, and, and, and the thing that I, I find ext-
1: extraordinary problem. with the cyclists, particularly those who do flout the law and who are aggressive, um, is that they're the likely uh, injured parties here. They're not, you know, if they get into a, a fight with me and my Range Rover, they ain't going to win it. Do you know no, what I mean? But, well, uh, well
0: it, they won't. They won't win it at the roadside, but they probably will win it in court. No, I'm talking about and, if it's no, if it's an encounter vulnerable. which involves um, one of
1: us falling yeah, over.
0: Yeah, no, uh, they are so vulnerable, and and the, the, these this legislation that I'm proposing is designed to protect them, Uh, and as you said earlier on, some of them are very vitriolic and uh, they don't like to change. They want to be able to continue cycling with impunity and anonymity, and the time has come now for everyone to be responsible um, because there are far too many serious accidents involving cars and cyclists. Uh, Tragically, where cyclists receive fatal injuries or serious injuries. It isn't even compulsory to wear a helmet and many cyclists will say, "Well, I don't want to wear a helmet." Motorists have to wear a seatbelt. Right. So we we just need to look at the law very sensibly and and have a, a literally parity system between the two, in my view. Yes,
1: and also every single day that I that I'm on the road, I see a cyclist with headphones in, not listening, uh, rolling around all over yes. the road. I mean, I nearly ran one over by St Paul's one day uh, because he was a delivery cyclist and he had a you know one of those boxes on the front of his bike, and he suddenly, for no apparent reason, just decided to go to completely sort of. Uh, At a right angle across the road in front of my car, and he had headphones in because he didn't know I was there.
0: No, well, you you know, if if we're if we're distracted at uh, driving a car, um, we we fail you know three to nine points possible squad disqualification etc etc for driving without care and attention
3: yeah.
0: um a cyclist the worst that could happen if you know who it is and obviously you don't because you've got no means unless you're going to get out say right what's your name and address where you're from and yeah. he's going to tell you probably where to go um you're not going to make any progress the maximum fine will be a thousand pounds if you were prepared to go through that and and of course risk exposing yourself to potentially very aggressive behavior on their part. Mm.
1: No, um, that's so, absolutely right. So, so, so how it, would how would it work in your view this registration because I I I've, I've talked about this in the past and when people have said well how would you do it I've always said well could you not in some way attach almost a registration number to the back of the of the saddle? Would you have it done more electronically than that? Uh, well I'd have
0: it very similar to DVLA um but it's, it's an issue whether you have it on the bike or whether you have it. I would prefer to have a tabard so that every cyclist... So we know who's cycling. And that who, you have to wear a tabard. There has to be a registration. So it doesn't relate to the bike. It relates to you.
1: So you could almost have it so, in the way that people have fishing licences on their back.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So yeah. we know who you are. With, with cars, the, the notice actually goes to the registered keeper and the registered keeper then has to nominate the driver. It would be simpler, in my view... Um, just to have a, a tabard, because it's not, a, it's a, you know, there should be high-vis jacket, I would make that compulsory a high-vis vest, with their tabard, that is who you are. Mm. Um, it, it could even have a name and a, a number there, couldn't it? But I'm sure there's a way around it to preserve people's privacy. So we know there's a central registr- registration system, and if you commit an offence then that is reported and we know at the press of the button who you are, the authorities know who you are, and they can proceed to investigate the case.
1: Yes, exactly. And uh, that would uh, that would seem to me to be a perfectly legitimate form of action because at the moment there doesn't ever seem to be any police interest in prosecuting cyclists. There doesn't ever seem to be any police officers around, even though there have been more of them around. Uh, if they wa- I've actually watched police officers watching cyclists go through red lights and they don't do anything.
0: Well, because what's the point? It's going to be a nominal financial penalty, no points. They don't have a license. They don't need to make sure their bikes are roadworthy. You know, we have to have an MOT for our cars. Um, You know, they're basically excused from an awful lot of things, and and the time has come for change now. You know, there's this tension with very limited road space, and Mm. we've got to all look at it responsibly and say, right, you know, in the same way motorists need to overtake sensibly, we need to share it. But until you make people accountable... They're going to behave irresponsibly. And, and if you're going to be accountable, we need to know who you are. That has to be the starting point, doesn't it?
1: Yes, exactly right. And I suppose um, somebody would say, what about children? Because children are also cyclists and they can sometimes be quite young children who cycle. I mean, I would not let my young children cycle on the, on the roads at all because they're far too dangerous. Um, but as, the, as they become teenagers, they might want to be going out. They might use their bike to go from point A to point B. What would you do with them? Um that's
0: a very good question and I, I have, <laughs> the I, only
1: listen, I, you've got me on the hot there I, sorry. I some thought no um, the only reason nick I, i'm asking you is because i you know i've talked about registration for cyclists for many a year this has been one of my bugbears i'm so grateful for you for coming on and actually bringing some some legal expertise to it because i've been advocating this for a long time but there is a, there are a, a couple of sort of loopholes if you like that do come up and yeah. one of them is kids
0: yeah, if, if, if they're at an age where they're old enough to cycle on a road without supervision, yeah. um, in my view, I would have a tabard in exactly the same way because they're old enough to commit offences. Yes. And, and they, they will learn like a learner driver learns, mm. you know. Um, we need to cycle responsibly. Why should they be excused from... No, listen, I I totally agree. I mean... the law? If they're on the road, it's a serious place to be and they need to comply with the law. Um, and I would actually introduce a law that says that children under a certain age and it probably will be something like 16 are not allowed to cycle unaccompanied or it may be younger than that. I, you know, I'm just talk, talking uh, as I uh, thinking as I'm talking to you. Um but then they have to they have to be identified. Um if if children most children and we're talking about young children are hmm. always accompanied by, by parents, aren't they, who would obviously have to be identifiable.
3: Yes, um, exactly.
0: And uh, and there needs to be a disqualification system in place. You know, at the moment you can drive paralytically drunk on the road on a cycle and you're driving whilst unfit through through alcohol, Mm. you cannot be disqualified for cycling. Although, interestingly enough, if you are apprehended, the court does have power to disqualify you, even though you're on a bike from driving a car. Um, But uh, I've I've never heard that. I've never heard of that being invoked. It's a rare piece of legislation. But actually, if you're driving... Um, it's unfit. There's no limit. It's a case of if you're unfit. You cannot be disqualified from cycling, which again seems perverse, doesn't it?
1: Well, it does, doesn't it? Because also insurance should be carried Absolutely. for all sorts of reasons. Because well, you could... be compulsory insurance. Yeah. I mean, you can damage cars, you can damage property, you can damage people, individuals. I mean, one of my bugbears at the moment as well, talking about sort of teenagers and young people, is these kids who are inevitably ne'er-do-wells. I don't wish to uh, in any way brand them all like this, but they do that thing where they raise the front whole wheel up yeah. and cycle on the a back wheelie. wheel. I think it's called just a wheelie. A wheelie, yeah. <laughs>
0: motorcyclists do um, it. <laughs> Yeah,
1: but they're doing it in such a way that is almost intimidatory. You know, yeah. they do it yeah. um, well, in parts of London. It's and incredibly dangerous as well. Yeah, it's incredibly dangerous if you're driving behind one of them. You don't know whether they're going to fall down no. and going to go under the wheels of the car. If they're coming towards you, you don't have no idea, you have no way of knowing if they're going to be able to, to come at you with an a straight line of any kind it's it's quite bizarre
0: and and the problem from the motorist perspective is apart from obviously being well protected is if you injure a cyclist the starting point is it's your fault and although it isn't formulated so much in law the burden literally is for you now to prove at a high level it wasn't my fault he did this or, or he did that, and that's h- how this accident happened. The starting point is we're going to look at you, we assume you've done something wrong you know how was you driving were you on your phone? did you have your radio too loud? were you looking at your sat nav you know explain how you caused this injury even though he's come right off um swerve without in- in any indication they're going to look at you to see if they can point the finger of blame at you and mo- many motorists don't realize actually that is the reality of the law at the moment
1: Yes, absolutely right So, so, like so how are we going to get through. this how are we going to make this happen, Nick? Well, I think more and more motorists
0: are now waking up to the idea that something needs to be done. Mm. Boris Johnson has sort of held this the golden era for cyclists. And, you know, I would love to be able to cycle on the rare occasions I'm in my office and not in court. I would love to cycle the 17 miles into my office. But for me, it's so dangerous. So, you know, Sharps has been talking about a £2 billion investment. We need a massive investment in the infrastructure. Um, so that we have safe, preserved cycle lanes, and I would say that those have to be used by cyclists. Yes. So that you use them, they're protected not by paint but by high, a high, pay, a high sort of curb, so that you are protected and you cycle there. And then you know, that we, there'll be many more cyclists on mm. road because I'm sure lots of people would like to cycle but it's just too
1: dangerous Well it's very dangerous, there's hordes of them and I'll, I'll leave you with one final example of something I saw uh, a few weeks back I was on Lower Thames Street uh, which goes along the, from sort of Tower Hill down to uh, Westminster and they've got a 20 mile an hour speed limit there and they've got a cycle lane on the right hand side of the dual carriageway right, which used to be a dual carriageway it's now a single lane for cars of course in both directions. A cyclist was cycling on my side of the road, not in the Cycle lane. Yeah. I slowed to 20 miles an hour from 22, because that's how nervous we all are about getting yeah. a ticket, yeah. right? Yeah, well, um, so, yeah. so yeah. I'm so I'm down to 20 or 19. This guy overtakes me on the inside yeah. at yeah. about 25, yeah. and of course the, the the speed camera doesn't go off.
0: No, well it won't, and because of course he's not driving a motor vehicle, so he's not going to be prosecuted unless there's a particular... Certain places have bylaws to detect speeding cyclists, but most don't, and no. Um, there's no particular offence under the Road Traffic Act for speeding no. um, at all. So they can speed because they're not in a motor vehicle. That's why there needs to be parity legislation and there needs to be penalties in a similar way to motorists. And, and then people will take their, their cycling very seriously in terms of the way they cycle, what they wear, mm. and the state of their machine. Yes, uh, in the same way that motors
1: have to. Well, let's not let's not talk about what they wear because I don't want to start feeling unwell at this time of the morning. Nick, thank you very much indeed. Nick Freeman, uh, Mr Loophole there with a very good idea of registration for cyclists. And what I find amazing, right, is all cyclists, no matter how good, bad or indifferent they are in terms of adhering to the rules of the road, none of them want to be registered. None of them want to pay any insurance. None of them want to take any responsibility for what they do. And I think that is entirely wrong and I don't think it should be allowed. 0344 499 1000. I've already got got a whole load of anecdotal information coming in on, on twitter colin says this morning mike i called a cyclist out yesterday for crossing the white line at a red light he did not cross the junction but white lines are set back for a reason to allow hgvs to get round the junction if one was turning yesterday he would have been toast and another one here from nick i'm a postie and numerous times i've nearly been knocked over by cyclists who seem to think that they can ride on the pavement or not adhere to the speed limit that is the problem You know, if you are going to cycle, you know, all good luck to you. But you should be adhering to the rules. And it's not right to say, oh, there's only a few bad cyclists and there's a few bad drivers as well. Well, no, in my experience, at least 50 percent of the cyclists that I see every single day are going through red lights, riding on pavements, not adhering to the traffic laws and breaking the rules because they think they can. And I think it should end right now. This is Talk Radio. Talk Radio.
3: With the world on pause.
0: so to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
3: Mint Morning with Mike
0: Graham. Talk Radio.
1: So our front page of the Daily Telegraph today is a good sort of example of how confusing this whole situation could be, there's a picture of two people swimming uh, in Foss, uh, -Foss, Lidford-on-Foss, in the River Brew in Somerset, um, which I'm not sure is allowed. I mean, they're quite far away from one another, so they're probably two metres apart, so that might be all right. But are they allowed to do that? Are they allowed to go to the beach? Are people allowed to go to the beach in Devon? Apparently not. Are they allowed to go to the beach in Brighton? Apparently so. Are they allowed to go to the beach in Canberra? Apparently yes. The police shut the car parks there when they were full up but they didn't give everybody a ticket that was actually on the beach. Police are now being told, according to the Daily Telegraph, that they will need to do spot checks to enforce quarantine. Now, I can't see this working very well at all. Let's talk to Chris Hobbs and see what he makes of it all. Hello, Chris. Yeah, hello,
4: Mike. How are you doing? Uh, Not too bad, surviving, surviving the lockdown. The lockdown, lockdown is uh, is it working well for you? Not really. I mean, to be quite honest, Mike, as you know, I'm retired, so life hasn't changed too much. But obviously, I'm staying within my London borough, basically, if I go out an exercise or, uh, or a bit of shopping. I think for
1: a lot of people,
4: it's it's kind of... It's it's passable
1: in the sense that you can do it, but it's the fact that you can't do what you want that is annoying. Like, you can't go off on holiday. You can't take a trip in the car if you really would fancy popping over to Carrefour's in Calais, you know, to pick up some wine and pate or something for the weekend. You know, you can't do the things that you would
4: otherwise be doing. No, that's right, but I think, personally speaking, I, I haven't got it too bad, but I, I do feel for the people... That are struggling, struggling financially, struggling food wise, struggling with kids. Yes. When they've got young children and they're they're under lockdown. And I think personally I've got to be pretty lucky, but uh, other people I think must be suffering a bit now.
1: Yes, I think that's right. And if you haven't got a garden in this weather, it must be pretty dreadful too. If you're stuck in a block oh. of flats, it must be horrendous. But uh, but let's talk about the police because you can't be uh, a, very envious of, of your former colleagues either at the moment because <clears throat> some of the things they're having to do um, are quite ridiculous, aren't they?
4: I think the police are totally fed up. Frontline police with what they've been asked to do. We've had hasty legislation come in. The officers haven't had any time to be trained on it, which mm. is what normally happens. Legislation takes months, doesn't it, to be put together, yes. go before Parliament, then officers have that. None of that's happened.
1: I was going to say, presumably, oh. there's a sort of cons- consult- consultative period where the police are actually asked about it as well.
4: Yes, that's right. And uh, this has just been lumped on them I mean the average number of tickets per force per day is seven mm. so it's not a huge amount but obviously mistakes have been made mm. and police officers are very frustrated and what's been worse Mike is the number of attacks on police have gone soaring yeah. in Sussex for example up 39% really? in Surrey yesterday yep in Surrey yesterday a single crewed officer went to disperse a group a large group and they attacked him right and he was quite badly hurt. And the number of times you've had officers spat on, coughed on, bitten. Um, you know, it, it's been very, very difficult for the police out there. And I suspect when they, depending on what's said about quarantine, um, they could well be holding their head in their hands by this evening. But we don't quite know exactly what, the Home Secretary expects of officers. Well, um, no, I believe
1: to... I believe that Prissy Patel is going to give the press briefing today, so maybe she'll expand upon what it is that she wants to do. But the thing is, if you're asking the police to do spot checks on people, I mean, who would you know, or how would you know who to do a spot check on?
4: Well, I've got obviously got friends in the Border Force, Mike, and uh, a few days ago they were being told that quarantining probably wasn't going to happen. Right um, now they're being told. Well, they haven't been told anything. Um, Their questions, first of all, their big question is, why the hell didn't we do anything at our borders when all this was breaking? Mm. That's something that Border Force officers have been saying. They've been emailing. They've been going. But that's one question. Secondly, when the passenger gets here, what's going to happen? They did away with landing cards a few months ago. Are they going to reintroduce landing cards so people will write down the address? What's going to happen to the e-gates, Mike? You know, we just slap your passport down and the gate's open. I
1: think they've from, done away with them have anyway, there?
4: haven't they? No, they're still no, 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 no. If you're if you're coming from New York or from Italy, they still open. Over the aren't last they? couple of months, you can sell through e gates. Right. I mean, you know, the whole thing is a fiasco. Mm. Um, but you need to get those addresses, and then will the police be expected maybe to do a handful of spot checks a day? saying in Ealing. Um, you know, you might get a couple of PCSOs, a couple of police officers. That isn't going to be a big handicap to police. If they're expected to check thousands upon thousands, right. given the problems they've already got, then that's going to become a nightmare. And, of right. course, it's all got to be administered by someone.
1: Well, exactly. And also, as I said, if you're going to just go up to people at random to see whether they should be or not uh, quarantined, I mean, that's a hiding to nothing. I mean, you're wasting your time mostly, aren't you? Because most of the people you stop will probably not be quarantined and they'll probably say, get lost.
4: I think I think the way it will be done, Mike, is they'll be going to addresses and they'll be obtaining addresses at the border. No one's quite sure how yet. And they will be passed to the police somehow, and the police will then carry out checks at the addresses where the people say they're going to quarantine themselves. And if they're not at those addresses, of course, that's open to all sorts of abuse. Mm. You know, you can get people coming into, say, Heathrow, giving an address that they know they're not going to be staying at. Right. Um, And then, of course, if they're visitors, the only chance you've got of grabbing them for their £1,000 fine or whatever is when they leave. Right. (laughs) Right. And also,
1: we, you know, I mean, they've done it in Australia and New Zealand, both of which are countries uh, which basically banned anybody from going there apart from people who were nationals of those countries. So if you were, for example, from the UK, you couldn't go into Australia and be quarantined for 14 days. But if you were an Australian national, you could. So they're talking about much smaller numbers of people. We're still even now, I assume, talking about, you know, many, many more people that come through London because London is one of the central hubs of the world where people come.
4: I think at the moment, as I understand it from Border Force officers and indeed someone from Heathrow was talking yesterday, the number of passengers, they've actually closed a couple of terminals at Heathrow Mm. because the numbers don't justify it. Right. Um, But the number of passengers passing through Terminal 2 on a daily basis is only 5,000, which is a fraction of what normally passes through. But of course, that number is presumably going to increase. Whether the quarantine rules will keep those numbers low or not, Um, we we really don't know at this moment in time. But as things progress, and obviously number of passengers will increase as the months go by, in case of how long we keep the quarantine on for. One thing, though, Mike, is interesting. Uh, Al Jazeera published um, online literally every country in the world what they were doing Mm. in terms of this virus and what they were doing at ports at their air and seaports. Now, if there was a league table in terms of action or lack of it, you look down, and I read dozens and dozens of what countries are doing, we will be bottom. Mm. We did absolutely virtually nothing, whereas other countries were doing an awful lot more than we were doing. And now they're saying, well, it wasn't worth it. Well, that's mm, the other thing. I'm
1: not, I mean, I'm one, I'm not sure really where we are on this quarantine. I'm not even sure if it is actually government policy yet. You know, all the indications are that it will be or that it might be. But nobody's actually saying that it is yet, you know. And you're quite right. I remember asking the first the first week we really covered this, which I think was the end of January. I remember asking a virologist who was on for the first time. I said, you know, they started uh, basically... Um, testing people, screening people who are coming back from certain countries in America uh, when they arrive at the airports. Why are we not doing that? And he basically said, oh, well, there's no point in doing that because you don't really catch people with the virus. You only catch maybe one in five. And I'm thinking, well, one in five is better than none in five, isn't it? Um, And then they've only now got they've only now got round to it when presumably all the people who had the virus, who brought it here from abroad have already have already been here and got here and maybe left again, you know?
4: Yeah, I mean, it's again, this is what Border Force officers were saying. Yes, a temperature detector or whatever they use mm. isn't going to detect everyone. But we were also being told, Mike, weren't we, how contagious, how infectious this is? Yeah. So even if you didn't get everybody, surely getting some people is going to be better than not doing yeah. anything. Well, this and is we're it. Still being t- we're still being told today, well, it would have made a little difference. And right. talk about conflicting messages. I mean, <laughs> Well, you this really is the don't thing. know whether you're coming or going.
1: This is the thing. I mean, and when police officers are handing out tickets to people in Devon, and I'm not, I'm not saying they're doing it wrong, because presumably somebody's told them to hand out the tickets in Devon to people driving cars to a beach, and yet you've got thousands of people, maybe only 5,000, but still thousands of people a day coming through Heathrow. You know, it doesn't really make any sense, does it?
4: No, it doesn't. I mean, I, I could, I've got a little bit of sympathy for the government. Obviously, this is completely unusual, it's new territory. Yeah. But on the other hand, you have to say that so when you look at other countries, you know, I've got friends in Australia and and they're sort of saying, Well, we did a lockdown straight mm. away, we've hardly got any problem at all now. Yeah, right. And yet we're still we're still in the throes of a serious crisis. It really doesn't make any sense whose experts are better, really. Well, that's the trouble, isn't it? And speaking of the border force,
1: I mean, we spoke to Nigel Farage yesterday, who was down in Dover, watching what was going on with these migrant boats coming over from Calais. And Priti Patel yesterday, last night, put out a statement, more or less saying that, you know, they are stopping them. They are making sure that not all of them are reaching the shores of this country, but an awful lot of them are still reaching the shores of this country. And we don't even know who those people are, never mind whether they've got coronavirus.
4: No, that's right. I mean, I'm, I'm hoping they'll they'll be tested. Um, well, we you'd like know, to think so. Of, well, you would sincerely hope so. Um, obviously, they've been in living living in conditions probably where that virus um, absolutely flourishes. Yeah, I would think um, so. But the whole channel, the whole Channel situation is um, is a mess, and I can I can see it. I really can, from the French point of view, or certainly from the French on the front line, the mm. police officers. Who are really fed up with patrolling the beaches and patrolling the ports. And, and their argument is, Mike, and it's, it's a valid one, that they obviously have their own migrants, asylum seekers, refugees, and quite a lot of them in France. Yes. They've travelled across Europe to get there, so it's, mm. France isn't the first country. And right. their view, as I understand it, on the front line is that, well, if a few, relatively few in terms of the numbers they've got, want to take that extra step to Britain. Um, Why are we putting in a lot of effort to stop them? Now, I think that effort has declined. Mm. Um, There has been some success, and the French do sometimes turn them back, but it's woefully inconsistent.
3: Um,
4: And what's going to happen after Brexit, Mike, I really don't know. We really... Who have a problem on their
1: hands. Well, I mean, Priti Patel was more or less saying that she needs to change the legislation in the long term in order to stop it from happening, and that's fine. But I would have also thought there must be a way to persuade the French that if they were more stringent in letting fewer people get to Calais, that would be in their interest, because then they wouldn't be travelling through France and waiting to get to those horrible camps in Calais before they came here. And if it was somehow made more difficult for them to come here, perhaps those camps in Calais would disappear because they might go somewhere else.
4: Yeah, I mean, I think at the moment, they've they've sort of spread out from Calais. They're all, all along the coastline. Yeah. Um, at some that so weren't, you know, Cherbourg, for example, that, that weren't an issue before. Um, yeah, I mean, it's a problem, isn't it? It starts with Italy and Greece. If you say, let's stop them at the first country they come to, that's where they should be claiming. But then mm. you think that the poor Greeks, and the Italians have really got overloaded um, with the issue. And then, of course, they, they go across Europe and they end up, as you say, in France. Yeah. It's, um, and some countries won't take any, under any circumstances. Right, exactly. But the whole thing is It wasn't, let's face it, Mike, from the start, it's been chaos and confusion and uh, people have all acted in their own national interest to a certain extent. There's been no coordinated effort, has there, really? There really hasn't. Uh, and it could get worse well. Well, I mean, it's. it's, Yeah,
1: absolutely right. And as the little lockdown gets lifted, it will be more confusing. And and, I mean, as you said, I'm sympathetic with the government's uh, trouble as well because it's not easy. But the bottom line is, um, you know, there maybe does need to be a bit more leadership and a bit more specificity about what people can and can't do.
4: Yeah, I mean, I've given up now. (laughs) I've given up trying to can and can't I mean, do. I, I, um, can under- complete- I
1: mean, I feel as if I don't p- specifically need to be told exactly what to do. You know, here's when you clean your teeth. Here's when you put sugar in your tea. You know, here's when you go for a walk and this is how far you go. and This is who you go with. I don't need that. But clearly some people do.
4: Yeah, I mean, as I say, I'm when I go out, I'm careful. If I go into a shop, I'll, I will put a mask on. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. But the, even masks might. You look at the chaos over masks. We were being told, weren't they, that we shouldn't wear them. Right. When it went back in March, no, mm. no, they're a waste of time. They could cause more trouble yeah. than they're worth. Now, all of a sudden, that's changing to, well, yes, you wear them, but you're stopping yourself transmitting infection to others. But it's even that simple business of a mask has become confused mm. and chaotic. And now it could be, if you go on the underground or on the train, you will have to wear them. Mm. So we've moved from one one sort of set of <laughs> circumstances or beliefs in back in March to something completely different in May. Yeah. No no wonder people are confused. Well that's easy for me, I just
1: don't go on the tube simple, uh, that's the way I get around it but uh, Chris, thank you very much indeed. Chris Hobbs there, uh, former police officer, talking about the confusion out there uh, from certainly the police's point of view. I don't see how they can manage this quarantine idea, which I don't think is a very good idea in any event. I mean surely if you're going to quarantine anybody, you just quarantine people who have tested positive. How about that? Rather than quarantining everybody You know what I'm saying? This is Talk Radio.
0: The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.
1: Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. The Perio Awards are coming up very shortly with Marta Malagon. Uh, the highlight of the week. The first time they've been done in our brand new studios here, uh, which I may have mentioned a couple of times this week. I hope nobody's been too upset about that uh, because we have got some magnificent views, which I've also mentioned. The Tower of London, Tower Bridge, St Paul's Cathedral, the Cheese Grater Building, the Walkie Talkie Building, uh, the HMS Belfast. I mean, you know, the list goes on and on and on. You don't even need to come to London anymore. Uh, you just need to watch this show and I will give you the guided tour. Talk- Sure. let's talk now though because it's time for our homeschooling section to Greg Carter technical specialist at the AA because a lot of people have told me stories of flat batteries because they're not driving their cars they've told me of you know finding that they've got a puncture because they haven't looked at the car for a while not sure about what to do if you need to change the oil so we thought let's get Greg Carter on uh, and tell him and ask him what we should be doing to maintain our cars during this kind of difficult lockdown period Greg a very good uh, afternoon to you welcome good afternoon mike how are you yeah very well indeed i mean more than about five or six people have said to me that they've gone to get in the car and then realized they haven't driven it for a while and the battery's gone flat so first of all tell us what to do if the battery does die um and second of all what do you need to do to stop it from getting flat in the first place
5: um well the the battery situation is is a bit of an issue because you know a lot of people have obviously not been driving their cars for extended periods of time um Basically, I mean, our advice has been to, to start the car once, once a week and let it run every 15, you know, for about 15 minutes, um, 15, 20 minutes, just sticking over in the drive, keeping an eye on it, staying with the vehicle, you can't abandon it. Um, and that should keep it topped up. But obviously, if it's already gone flat, then you need to give the AA a call. Right. Um, and, and get one of our patrols out to uh, to give you a, a jump start.
1: Okay. I mean, you can get a jump start. else. I'm not suggesting that uh, I'm, I'm trying to take business away from the AA, but, I mean, if you're not in the <laughs> AA, um, you might want to just get a mate to put the jump leads on, won't you?
5: Yes, yeah, you can do that. Um, I mean, we've got good instructions online now on to do a jump start. Okay. Um, but, you know, it's we would all, you know, in any situation... First thing to do is to check the vehicle handbook. Right. All the instructions on how to do these things are in the handbook, and it's good to have it to hand so you can you can see exactly what the process is. Right. But basically, um, if you want to do a jump start, if you've got some good quality jump cables, um, you know, you need to get obviously the vehicles need to be close enough together mm. to, uh, to for them to reach across. Um, you would uh, attach the, the the red jump lead across from the working vehicle's battery positive. To the flat battery positive. Okay. Um, and then you use your black jump lead, the negative one, and you attach that to the negative terminal on the working battery on the on the charge battery vehicle yeah. that you've got that's moving. And the other end of it you want to attach that to some good solid unpainted surface, ideally on the engine somewhere. Yes. Not the negative battery terminal on the other car. No. Then leave them two connected for about three minutes. Um, let everything balance itself out. Start the car up that's got a good battery let it run for about three minutes. Okay. And then try and start the car with the flat battery. They should that should at that point start the car up as right. long as there's no other sort of issues. Right. Then just leave it all connected up and let it run for about sort of ten or fifteen minutes. Mm. Then I would advise switch both cars off, disconnect the the leads in the in the reverse order the way you, you attach them. Yeah. And then attempt to start the the you know the car that originally had a flat battery, and mm. after that sort of period of time, as long as that battery is in good condition, there's no other issues. It should start. Yeah. If it doesn't, then that's the time to sort of start thinking about getting a repl- replacement battery sorted out. Yes,
1: I noticed by the way as well that batteries seems to have got a lot more expensive. I, last time I bought a battery, it was for a very <laughs> small car. I must admit, it was like a little Toyota. Quite a few years ago, and it was about sixty-five quid, I think. Um, but I was looking at getting a battery for another car the other day, um, a Mercedes, and it wanted—they wanted something like one hundred and sixty quid because it has to have this kind of, um, you know, the, the ability to for the engine to switch off, you know, when it's in green yeah, stop, mode or whatever. Start
5: batteries, um, yeah. So you've got. A number of, sort of new technologies in, in batteries, have, have, you know, as they've moved on over the years. Um, you've got sort of gel batteries and enhanced flooded batteries, and they are much more expensive. They've got much higher capacity, and they're capable of delivering that instant restart when, you know, when your car's in stop-start mode and you pull up at the lights and it switches itself off. Mm. You need you need a battery that's definitely going to be able to restart the car so they are a bit more expensive yeah okay and i mean in terms of
1: when a battery goes flat if you haven't say driven the car and it's a relatively you know reasonably good a car in reasonable condition um how long before the battery won't work is it is it i mean if you leave it say for two weeks what what happens
5: if it's if it's a good battery 2 weeks it should it should restart the vehicle it, there's a lot of things that that can affect this though if you if you're constantly going back out to that car to get things out of the boot unlocking it yeah relocking it again if the keys if it's got proximity keys and they're in range of that car often mm. so the car wakes up and and is looking for the car to be unlocked you know, um, this is why cars go, batteries go flat. Right. Within that two-week period in a in an airport car park, for instance, yes. because there's a lot of people walking around that car park pressing the button on their keys. Yes. And that's waking all the cars up. And they once they've been woken up, they stay awake for you know, hmm. fifteen twenty minutes, and that right. all adds to the drain. And that drains, yeah. Do you know what well, I did once? I used to have an old Land Rover
1: Discovery, and uh, I left the key in the ignition because I parked the car basically in this sort of country house setting, so I didn't have to worry about it. Um, and what I didn't know was that when you leave the key in the ignition of a discovery, it charges the key. So yes, when I went to, dri- so I went back like to that. drive it about five hours later, it wouldn't start.
5: <laughs> yeah, no, it doesn't surprise <laughs> me. It wasn't very helpful. Not locking the car is is is, a, is an issue as well because, right. you know, um if you don't lock the car then it's 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 basically sat there waiting for you to get it. Yeah. Yeah, it's still on effectively. Yeah.
1: Okay, all right. Now what about oil levels? Um most people nowadays I would say because cars are so computerised and modernised, there's not you, there's not really as much of an issue checking the oil because it will probably tell you when it needs re- di- when it needs replacing, won't it?
5: Um, yeah, but it's always a good idea, you know, if your car has got a dipstick or no um, Many modern cars don't have a dipstick, and they've just got a dashboard readout. Right, um, But, you know, if you've got a fairly sort of re- mid-budget car, it'll have a dipstick in it. And, um, you know, checking oil is something you should do regularly, mm. because, you know, something can go wrong with the engine, and it can start using oil very quickly. So, yeah. you know, and if and that might be a fairly minor thing, but if it runs out of oil, it won't be minor no. for long.
1: No, of course. But that, again, is quite unusual, isn't it? I mean, it'd have to be something wrong with the car for it to run out of oil, wouldn't it?
5: Um, yeah, but there's you know um, things like turbos going, starting to go wrong, um, can start passing quite a lot of oil quite quickly, and whilst yeah. the turbo is it's quite an expensive problem, mm. it's not as expensive as having to put a new engine in the car. No, no it's what you have to Do if you run out of oil.
1: Right. So, I mean, in general, um, is it a mileage thing that makes it replacing oil, making making the you know, like for example, if you say had a car for five years, on on average driving, I don't know, four or five
5: thousand miles a year, how how often would you need to change the oil? Um, most um, manufacturers recommend a, an oil change at around about the twelve thousand miles mark. Okay, some less, some more. I mean, it's like I say, it's always worth checking the handbook. That's that's kind of your car bible, really. Mm.
3: Mm. And you know, if
5: you if you look at if you look at the handbook, it will tell you when the service schedules are. Right. And some of them are based on mileage and time. Okay, so a lot of vehicles will actually put a warning up to say well, it's been this long or it's been this many miles mm. or a combination of the two and now yeah. it's time to get it serviced. Okay.
1: And finally, uh, tyres. Um, obviously, again, if you leave the car for a bit and it's parked somewhere and you haven't run it anywhere, sometimes if you've got maybe a slow puncture, you might find the tyres have let out a bit of air.
5: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it, if, if your car's been parked up for any period of time, it's always, you know, essential really to, to check all the tyre pressures. Um, tyre pressure gauges are relatively cheap tool that you can buy um, obviously a visual inspection to give you an idea and if, mm. if they all look like they're pumped up effectively um, then there's no harm in running up to the local garage and then using their their tyre pressure um, you know their tyre inflating thing that you put 50p in right. um, to get your pressures right, again the pressures will be in the handbook, if not they're, they're, all, they're usually printed inside one of the door shuts or in the fuel flap, so that'll give you an idea of what the pressure should be
1: okay and as far as if you've got say a a, a sort of a a soft tire i mean is there any uh, is at what what point i suppose is the question that you
5: shouldn't drive on it if it looks soft you shouldn't really drive on it to be honest with you the thing is with a soft tire is as you drive along you imagine the flat stops the flat spot stays at the bottom of the tire as you're moving that pushes the air around the tire and it heats up very very quickly so as soon as you go up to speed it starts to get hot and you know soft tires are a major cause of blowout so you know maybe just if it is a bit soft if the if garage is local enough then get it to the garage but otherwise you need to get some air in it really before you drive it
1: yeah okay good stuff well listen greg thank you very much indeed for that greg carter technical specialist at the aa uh, telling us all about what to do with your battery dyes what to do about your oil what to do about your tires uh, i hope that that was interesting uh, and fulfilling for you because uh, if your kids are listening uh, you can get them to check your uh, tires as well uh, just go out and make sure that they know uh, whether or not they've got punctures or whether they look a bit flat because sometimes it's just somebody needs to tell you that uh, before it gets to too uh, too difficult for you mid-morning with mike graham talk radio
0: the independent republic of mike graham on talk radio
1: it's twelve forty-six. it's friday we are in a studio high above the river thames and it's time for this
2: ladies and gentlemen welcome to the perrier awards
1: Well, that music can only mean one thing. It's the return of Marta Malagon uh, and the Perrier Awards. A very good afternoon to you, Ms Malagon.
6: A very good afternoon to you. Thank you very much. I can see that our surroundings have changed.
1: They have indeed changed. Much uh, improved, Slunny. you would say, wouldn't you?
6: It's very nice. Got yes. great views. You've
1: got a lovely view out the window. Have you noticed?
6: Yes, I have noticed uh, that you can see uh, certain uh, landmarks.
1: Yes, St Paul's Cathedral. This
6: city. um city. Tower of London. Yes, The cheese grater. Cheese grater. Which one is the cheese grater?
1: The one that looks like a cheese grater. Well... (laughs) You
6: know, I, Well, I, you know where the walkie-talkie is? Yes.
1: Well, there's one to the left of the walkie-talkie which looks like a big sort of, tri- not triangular, but you know the oblong-type cheese grater with the handle that goes across the top? Mm, uh. I
6: don't, so my cheese grater doesn't look like that. Well, if
1: you've got a flat cheese grater, then obviously it doesn't yeah, look like that. Yeah, all did, yeah. That's all one, that, all one that you that you have a handle on.
6: It's flat, but it's also like the lid of a box.
1: No, that's no good. So
6: it, no, it, it is actually very good because you can grate the cheese in it and you put it in the fridge. Okay. So, you know. All right.
1: That's enough about cheese, though, isn't That's it? That's
6: enough about cheese. Yes. Yeah. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. Good and afternoon. welcome uh, to the Perry Awards. For the new listeners, yes. this is where I come in Yes. and look back at the week of the so-called independent so-called. republic of my grandma's yes. talk radio, which is my favourite moment. Mm. And as it's tradition, Mike, the first Perry goes to you. Thank you. It's a little reminder of the classic Megan impression of the week. Please ask me how I am. <laughs> You didn't do many until today. I was a little bit disappointed.
1: No, well, it's kind of been out of my mind, I suppose, because they haven't really been in the news. But, of course, now that they're on the cover of the Sunday Times magazine, I'll be reading that avidly.
6: They must be really, really upset about that.
1: I imagine so, because that's why they disappeared, to get out of the limelight.
6: Yeah, bless them.
1: Mm.
6: Well, my thoughts and prayers are with you. Indeed. This difficult time. Yes. Um, someone asked me the other day to do an impression of you making an impression of Megan. <laughs> That's <laughs> like, bizarre. I thought this is really getting very good. Maybe for next week. Yes. Uh, but you know the reason why there haven't been many Megan impressions this week, it's because uh, Mike's been very busy doing impressions of all the people. Yes. And making a return this week. It's the Trump impression of the week.
1: <laughs> I bet you if I say this, they'll put it on the front page. I bet you any money. It'll be the greatest story of all time. <laughs> I get. I'm not sure it sounded that much like Trump, but you know, it's it the, did not. It's the thought that counts.
6: Well, yes, exactly, and you know, this is the magic of radio. That's and uh, guys, there's and one television, more. And television, to be because yes, we're that's now a, on TV more than ever. Forget about that. Yeah. yeah. Um, anyway. You're on it
1: at the moment Even as we speak I can see you on a screen
6: Goodness gracious yeah. me
1: Yeah there we are
6: uh, <laughs> It's good <laughs> What a treat I know. For a listener uh, Anyway uh, There's one more Although I think this one uh, Probably deserves The An anti-parrier award uh, Can you guess what it is?
1: No Knowing me Furloughing you Aha <laughs> Well that was a headline I was reading <laughs>
6: I know But you have to
1: say Aha like that I like, know Like uh, Partridge Yes yeah. I know Anyways. This was, of course, the story of him furloughing his own uh, gardener and housekeeper.
6: Yeah, how very cheeky. Unbelievable. I mean, come yeah, on. Can I know. I, f- I mean, I wish I could furlough myself. This although- is, by the
1: way, we forgot to mention this. This is the guy who got off the, uh, the parking, uh, the, the driving yeah. ban yes, he because did. he claimed that he, as Alan Partridge, needed to drive to work. Yeah. So his fictional character made it impossible for him to be banned.
6: I know. I thought anyway very that ridiculous. when people do like driving in... TV sitcoms and right. films and stuff. There's like a, like a trailer driving them. doesn't have them. to be real driving. Yeah, they don't no. really drive. No. I don't know. No, I know. Very it's tricky. Ridiculous, yeah. Um, moving on, earlier this week, we spoke to psychologist Joe Hemmings about oh, yes. what happens when we start people seeing people again. Mm. And you want to parry for this statement of the week. It just strikes
1: me that, you know, if you haven't really been doing anything at all, I mean, I'm one of these people, actually. Um, although, of course, I'm very, very well balanced. and <coughs> a completely normal individual, so <laughs> therefore I have no problems right. whatsoever. That's true.
6: It is correct. Yeah. I, a,
1: I never a truer word has been spoken no, on this show.
6: absolutely not. There's yeah. no uh, single bit of I say these things here. out
1: loud because nobody else will ever say
6: them. <laughs> That's fair <laughs> enough. Hey, someone has to, and yeah. you do to you, Mike. That's true. Uh, regular caller, Nick in Croydon. He's picked up on the fact that we've moved studios, uh, despite the fact that we've only mentioned it a couple of times yes. this week. Uh, however, he thought this was enough to uh, nominate you for Plank of the Week. Mm. And at the same time, he won the Perry for underestimation of the week.
0: Brilliant studio. Yep. You, you were tweeted and
2: showboated, amazing new, uh, new uh, announcement. Yes. And,
1: and all it is is a new studio. What do I do mean, mean all prepared? it is. Are you joking? Nick? Yeah. Do you not realise yeah, that the whole bread and butter of radio production is where you do it from, right? There's no point in hiding in a cave like Robert the Bruce with no lighting <laughs> and with no cameras uh, and muffled microphones. You want the best technology that money can buy, and that's what we now have. And you will be amazed at what you see coming from here in the next three weeks to four weeks. All right. Okay. I'll, I'll so, wait and see. So but, uh, if, if fine you fine want to nominate me for week. Plank of the Week, you're very welcome to, but yes be careful because it may come back and haunt you. <laughs> okay. Very good. I didn't know Robert the Bruce did a radio show from a cave but to be fair I don't know I don't know who
6: Robert the Bruce is You don't know who the Robert the Bruce is he's the
1: guy that had this famous spider in the cave he's a a folk one of the the most famous Scottish heroes fought the English and went to his cave just off uh, Gretna Green and the spider he was watching kept trying to weave its web and it kept failing but it kept trying and that was what he learned he learned from the spider you must try try and try again oh
6: that's very nice to
1: fight the English oh very nice yeah Okay. You can visit there uh, when you go to Scotland if well, you yeah. ever get to go to Maybe Scotland. Maybe next year or the yes. year after. There we are.
6: Uh, another caller, Pat in Stebney, received the proposition of the week. <laughs>
4: you know, I haven't got no children. I, you know, but my. Concern Would you like is, some? <laughs>
1: <sorry>? <laughs> Would you like some to look after? I thought no. I'd better qualify that. Yeah. <laughs> Would you like some to look after? Yeah, yeah. exactly. Mm. Well done. Thank you.
6: And another one for you, Mike. Uh, this is the. Oops, I forgot I was on the Radio Perrier Award.
1: Uh, oh, um, What are we doing? Oh, three, four, 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 nine, nine, one thousand. is <laughs> the number. Let's get uh, some news headlines, shall we? Uh, yeah, it's time for uh, <laughs> Rachel Jill. <Jewell. laughs> yeah. I don't know what happened there.
6: N- no one knows.
1: Bit of a brain freeze. Yes. It does happen. It from does time happen. To time Listen, you know, you're only human, as because I keep saying. Also, because we are in different surroundings, you know, everything's in a different place. So mm-hmm. when I look for a clock, it's not where it used to be. Yeah. And so your eyes sort of like, they've moved, for example, the talk back, which is what we use to talk to each yes. other. From the right to the left. And so for the first two days, I kept going over here to the right yeah. and pressing a button that wasn't there.
6: It happens the same thing to me in there because yeah. everything is on the other side of when it yes, used to be. there you go. So, you know, still getting used it's to
1: It's like it. driving on the wrong side of the road. Yes. Which you don't have which to do. Which is your side. Yes.
6: Yeah.
1: <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Quite right.
6: Oh, finally... Uh, I'm a big fan of Greek tragedies, oh, yes. and uh, I've gone completely mad this week, Oh, that's good. And uh, I'm breaking the protocol, Okay. and I want to tell a story in three parts, mm. uh, and I'm going to have to read it, okay. so forgive me for Not at reading all. a script. Here we go. Act 1. Wednesday, 20th of May, 2020, 10.32am. Interior of a brand new radio studio high above central London, with views of Tower Bridge, the Tower of London, St Paul's Cathedral, Canary Wharf, the River Thames, the Monument, and possibly the Eiffel Tower on a clear day. It's a new studio, have I mentioned that? This morning's house, my Graham, is about to interview Dr. Barrett Pancania on Skype. Things don't go well.
1: Uh, but we're going to talk now uh, to Dr. Barrett Pancania, Senior Clinical Lecturer at the University of Exeter Medical School. Uh, Barrett, a very good morning to you. Welcome back to the show. <laughs> are you hearing me? Hello, Barrett, are you there? I don't think he's hearing us at the moment. We'll try and get him back up. Oh, dear.
6: Oh, dear. Hmm. Act two. We don't panic. This happens all the time. Yes. Behind the glass, we're working fast to get Dr. Pancania back on the line. On this side of the glass, radio agent Mike Graham keeps calm and cool. He's been doing this for a very, very long time. Surely he's dealt with worse. We make eye contact. The switchboard is full of calls. Let's get one up. Easy saves the day and puts Dave in Bristol through to air. Things are looking up.
1: Let's go to the phones, uh, because we're still trying to get Dr. Bark Pancania back on. Dave uh, is in Bristol. Hello, Dave. Hiya. How are uh, you, Meg? Yeah, okay. how, very, very well, sir. What can I do for you? Well, it's just your thing this morning. <laughs> <laughs> Oops. <laughs> He's dropped off. <laughs> yep. Act
6: These three. things happened. Act three. <laughs> oh, no! Is this return of the phone box curse? What's going on? Are we being betrayed by this new fancy studio with views of the Eiffel Tower? (coughs) Can we blame James Larvin for this? Yes. Yes, definitely. Just as I'm about to beg studio manager Amy to end the pain and kill me, something wonderful happens. Like a deus ex machina bringing hope and light, Roddy announces we have Dr. Barrett Pancania on the line. Is this one of those tragedies with a happy ending? Or are we going to be all dead in the end?
1: I think we've got Dr. Pancania now on the phone. Uh, Dr. Pancania, very good morning to you. Welcome. Good morning, Graham.
6: <laughs> Congratulations to Dr. Brad Pancania for, for winning that. the After uh, all Wrong effort, Member of the Week.
1: He calls me Graham.
6: Oh, Marvelous. goodness gracious me. I wanted to cry I at this point. I know. This... It was
1: sort of, as I described it later, Hancock's half hour, which you probably don't know. But no. Tony Hancock was a comedian. He mm-hmm. used to do a very famous radio show. And it was funny. Yes. As, it, as indeed <laughs> was that, but not intentionally.
6: Yes. Well, <laughs> listen, it was a very tough 10 minutes. Yes. But we got through it. We did. It will happen again, I'm sure. I'm sure it will. But These know, are the vagaries well, of
1: live broadcasting.
6: Keep and carry on. And, exactly and, right. And, and you know, and if in doubt, just look out the window. It's very nice.
1: It's a lovely view. I don't yeah. know if I've mentioned that, but uh, over there I can see some cranes going up. They're oh, building yeah? more. I can see Canary Wharf in the distance.
6: Yeah, see the monument, London Bridge.
1: Yes, the cheese grater.
6: Yes, you can see some people cycling across London Bridge as Aye. well. Hey, you can That's see some. It's I can't drive
1: across there because of no, the you cyclists. No, No, they won't let me.
6: Well, what we can do is we can pivot the studio whatever we want in London. So mm. today you've got this view, but, you know, Monday you might have another view. I don't it's know. It's true.
1: Yeah, because we are, if nothing else, 360 <laughs> degrees of absolute and utter joy.
6: Yes. Remember the corridor? Yes. Oh, no. I don't Remember like the, the corridor. We, didn't like the we don't corridor. like the corridor. It's good. Corridor
1: of shame. Anyway, uh, yes. the corridor
6: of darkness. Yes. I keep going on and on, yes. so I'm just going to shut up now and okay. say uh, that's all for the Perry Awards. There'll be more next week. <laughs>